your leadership this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, please. John chapter 11 contains the seventh of seven signs or miracles that the Apostle John included in this gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Some would say that he saved the best until last, the greatest of his earthly miracles. In chapter 2, he changed the water into wine at a wedding of Canaan and Galilee. In John chapter 4, he was healing that royal official son. The son was in Capernaum, and he healed him. Jesus healed him from a distance. In John chapter 5, Jesus healed the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 6, he, first of all, fed a, a crowd of people that was approximately 20,000 people using five loaves of barley and two small fish. Then after that, he walked on a sea of Galilee in the midst of a raging storm out into the lake and entered the boat of his disciples. John chapter 9, he healed a man blind from birth, gave him new eyes. And then here in John chapter 11 is his grand finale. Like the end of a fireworks display, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead after having been in the tomb for four days so that decomposition has already set in. This final miracle is the centerpiece of John chapter 11. In a sense, Jesus is the protagonist. The antagonist would be death itself. And then there's some foils, people who are on the peripheral of the story, but add all kinds of meaning, keep the story moving along, and also teach us things about God himself. You'll remember the chapter begins with Jesus receiving a message from Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary. They wanted Jesus to know that their brother was very sick, in fact, was facing an imminent death. Jesus responded with a puzzling declaration and then an even more puzzling delay. Verse 4, the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified by it. Puzzling response to this news from Lazarus' sisters. Especially knowing that if Lazarus was not already dead by this time, he was shortly thereafter, based on the timeline that's laid out in John chapter 11. Verse 6 informs us that he, that is Jesus, then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. But we mustn't miss verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So don't think this two-day delay was somehow a reflection of his lack of concern, inattention, misplaced priorities, fear for his own safety, or a couldn't-care-less attitude. 
No way. Jesus loved these people. They were his friends. And he cared deeply for them. Eventually, he does make his way back across the Jordan to Bethany. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus' hometown. Bethany in Judea is located about 1.7 miles to the east of the city of Jerusalem. The Jews, Jesus' most formidable opposition, were already there. Remember, his disciples had voiced concern about him returning to this hostile environment. But Jesus, he'd insisted. He came with, notice verse 19, the many Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So like the many Jews, Jesus had come to, to Bethany to console Mary and Martha in their time of mourning. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. It's one of the Beatitudes, part of a list of qualities. I believe there's eight of them used to describe what those who have entered the kingdom of God look like or have experienced. Verse 4 teaches that those who came to understand the extent, have come to understand the extent of their depravity. The fact that sin has contaminated every part of us. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Inherently so. We are born sinners. Psalm chapter 51 verse 4 tells us that our sin begins at the moment of our conception. And so as we come to understand and agree with what the scriptures teach about us concerning our sinful natures, we mourn. We grieve. Folks, it's, it's bad news. Our sin separates us from God and makes us deserving of his wrath, his judgment, and his con condemnation. But Romans chapter 5, oh, by the way, happy Thanksgiving. No. <laughs> Romans chapter 5, verse 8 reads, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned. But he died for sinners to bring us safely home to God. That's the good news. So the bad news becomes good news as we trust Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. When we believe that he did what the scriptures say he did, was who he claimed to be, and will do what he promised he will do. When we believe that, then things change. You see, he lived a, a perfect life and he died a horrible death in order to pay the price for your sin and mine. The Apostle John, 
at the beginning of his gospel account, puts it this way. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who will believe in his name. Believed that Jesus was who he said he was. Did what the scriptures say he did and will do what he promised he would do. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Romans 3, chapter 3, verse 23 says, We've all sinned. There's no exceptions. We've all fallen short of the standard of perfection that God requires for relationship with him. Admit it. And then repent. Turn your back on sin. Have nothing to do with it. Ask for forgiveness based on what Jesus Christ accomplished on that cross. He died for us. And then invite him to become the leader of your life. Ask him to help you to begin to live your life in a, in a way that will please God. And not just for yourself or for what you think you can get out of life. If we've never done that, today may be your day. And I want to encourage you to make this the most significant Thanksgiving weekend of your entire life. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But you and I, we know that that's not the only time that we mourn when we come face to face with our own sin. What are some other circumstances that may cause us to mourn or to grieve. Times of failure, broken promises, fractured relationships, chronic health issues, job losses, shattered dreams, rejection, missed opportunities. The list could go on and on, couldn't it? You see, Jesus was telling the truth, the absolute truth. In this world, you will have trouble. And when we have trouble, those times of trouble are times to mourn. And nowhere, nowhere is that more true, maybe even more acceptable, then we face the death of a friend, someone we love. There is a time to mourn, and there is a time to be comforted. Jesus, in spite of life-threatening circumstances, came to console Martha and Mary in their time of loss, when they're mourning the loss of a beloved brother, a brother they love. We observed last week how Jesus comforted Martha in her time of loss. This week we want to move on to see how Jesus comforts her sister Mary. And I trust and pray that as we observe Jesus consoling these women in their time of great loss, we will find comfort for our own souls courage and confidence. In our times when 
we find ourselves mourning and grieving so that we can pass it forward, comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received from God in our time of need. If you are able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. John chapter 11, we want to begin at verse 17. We'll read through to the end of verse 37 this morning. So beginning at verse 17 of John chapter 11. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. That's Lazarus. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. <coughs> Father, in the past you spoke through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days you have spoken to us by your Son, whom you appointed heir of all things, and through whom also 
you made the universe. The same sun, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Thank you for this opportunity to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Made possible because the Apostle John, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote exactly what you wanted to reveal and preserve for us. Now, may that same Spirit enlighten our minds so that we can understand and then empower us. Empower us so that we are willing and able to take initiatives that fulfill what you have prepared in advance for us to do. Both as individuals and collectively as a local assembly of believers. Indeed, may our study of Jesus consoling Mary further equip us to be effective ambassadors, representatives of Jesus. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, Jesus comforted Martha as she mourned the death of her brother. She was comforted by his presence, and she was comforted by a promise, and then she was comforted by a personal self-disclosure. I am the resurrection and the life. Folks, I can't remember participating in the funeral of a believer, whether officiating or in attendance. I can't remember a time when John chapter 11, verses 25 to 26, was not referenced at some point during the service. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? They're words of comfort. Words of comfort from the lips of Jesus. God dressed in human flesh initially offered to a woman grieving the death of a brother she loved. And Jesus' words of comfort appear appear to have been successful because Martha immediately follows with an amazing confession of what she believes about Jesus. Did you notice that? In verse... 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed, past tense, that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Wow. And then she's found immediately following that, delivering a message to her sister Mary. Look at verse 28. The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. 
Mary got up quickly and went out to meet Jesus. There is a time to mourn and a time to be comforted. Jesus comforted Mary as she mourned her brother's death. And don't read too much into Martha's message from Jesus being delivered secretly. Probably it was just an attempt to give Mary the same experience or opportunity that Martha had just had with Jesus. A private conversation with the teacher. But that was not to be. And yet, Mary was comforted by Jesus calling for her. By the way, for a rabbi to call for a woman in this culture was a big deal. Women were very much marginalized when it comes to the educational opportunities in the first century Palestine. And yet, according to Martha, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. What happens next reminds me of an occasion that took place in Jesus' life when he tried to withdraw with his disciples. Remember, and let's turn there, Mark chapter 6. So Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 30. The apostles, the twelve disciples, gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all they had done and taught. So this is a pretty intensive season of ministry that they've been involved with. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they had not even had time to eat. They went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The same way Mary was unable to escape the many Jews who had come out from the city of Jerusalem to console them in their time of loss. They assumed she was headed back to the tomb of Lazarus. And being attentive mourners, they had followed her. Look again at verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came to Jesus, came to where Jesus was, she saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Mary came to where Jesus was. She saw him. She fell at his feet. And then she said, well, compare what she said. Look at verse 32. Put your finger there and then go back to verse, compare it with verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, I don't know about your translation, but mine is exact, verbatim. Mary said exactly, word for word, 
what Martha had said when she first greeted Jesus. So what's that tell you? They said exactly the same thing. This was kind of the, the common thing that was talked about prior to Jesus' arrival. It's how people were feeling. You know, if that guy had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. That was what they were saying amongst themselves. This was the common or shared expression of the mourners prior to Jesus' arrival. If only. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. What was my mother saying that I shared with you last week? If ifs and buts were candies and nuts, we'd all have a very Merry Christmas. Folks, that kind of wishful thinking or living in the past with those kinds of regrets. If ifs and buts were candies and nuts, it's like being trapped on one of those roundabouts with no exit. You're just spinning your wheels, going in circles and circles. It's interesting to note that Mary had a special relationship, it appears, with Jesus' feet. In Luke chapter 10, verse 39, we read, she had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. She was certainly teachable. Then here in John chapter 11, we find her falling at Jesus' feet. Rather dramatic expression, but probably an expression of overwhelming grief and perhaps an expression of gratitude for Jesus showing up. In John chapter 12, verse 3, Jesus then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped them with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. She was a worshiper. What a public display of affection and care. Can you imagine? Perhaps Mary's positioning at Jesus' feet was an expression of humility, a visible expression of her sense of unworthiness. Come to think about it, perhaps allowing others to comfort us in our season of grief requires a certain amount of humility. Wouldn't you agree? Mary did not hesitate when the good shepherd called her by name. She came. She saw him. She fell at his feet. And she expressed her confidence in his healing power. Mary was comforted by Jesus calling her. And there's a time to mourn and a time to be comforted. And Mary was also comforted by Jesus' emotional response. 
Look at verse 33 and 35. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And verse 35, Jesus wept. Three emotional responses. He was deeply moved in his spirit, he was troubled, and he wept. And I don't want us to kind of psychoanalyze these emotional responses to death. There has been much written about Jesus' emotional response in these circumstances. But what I do want to say is that the first Greek word translated deeply moved is used in extra-biblical writing to describe the snorting of horses. What in the world does the snorting of horses mean? Well, apparently when a horse snorts, they're agitated. They're upset. Something's bothering them. Look down at verse 38. The same word is used again. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved from within. This Greek word appears on three other occasions in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 30, and Mark chapter 1, verse 33, Jesus is, even, is issuing a, a stern warning. Same word, stern warning, deeply troubled. In Mark chapter 14, verse 5, Mary was scolded. This same Mary was scolded for that act of wasting money, pouring expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. Same word, scolding, deeply troubled. It appears that it involves a negative response to something that we're witnessing. Certainly, Jesus was agitated. He's troubled in spirit. Deeply troubled. And then the next Greek word is translated troubled. John uses this word several times in his gospel. In John chapter 5, verse 4, an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Remember the pool of Bethesda? It's the New Testament hospital in the city of Jerusalem where all the sick and lame would gather and wait for this water to begin to ripple. And the first one in would somehow be miraculously healed. That's where Jesus, of course, healed that lame man. He had laid there for 38 years. It was that place. So the stirring up of the water is the same as the word troubled. John chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came into this hour. Jesus is reflecting. He's in the final week of his life on earth, and he's reflecting on, on what's going to happen at the end of the week. And he's troubled. John chapter 13, verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. 
So as he reflects and he's in the midst of Judas, in the presence of Judas, he's troubled in his spirit, thinking about the betrayal that's going to take place in just a few hours. John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Then in verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. The third emotional response is Jesus wept. And for those who like to play Bible trivia, this is the shortest verse in the entire Bible. This, however, is not the same Greek word used to describe the weeping and wailing of the mourners. This Greek word used to describe Jesus' display of emotion is more like the quote that Glenn Bailey shared with us at the Tuesday night prayer meeting. He was reading that day, earlier in the day, from Our Daily Bread, and this is what he read. God assures us He hears and cares about every single spoken and unspoken prayer as well as the prayers that slip down our cheeks as silent tears. That's the word. That's the word that John chose to describe the emotion of Jesus at this point in the story. Jesus' emotion was slipping down his cheeks as silent tears. It was not the loud wailing and crying that the mourners, both true mourners and professional mourners, that had gathered to mourn Lazarus' passing. So now you've got the three different emotional responses. How do you want to interpret that? How do you interpret that? Jesus' emotional response to being the presence of these mourners and knowing that Lazarus had been laying in the tomb for four days. Some would argue that Jesus was identifying with those who were grieving. The greatest high priest who sympathizes with all our weaknesses His heart was going out to those people. I've experienced that. I've struggled not to cry when I see other people hurting. You've experienced that. We all experience that. Is that what Jesus was experiencing? Others would see Jesus as agitated, disturbed, troubled with the consequences of sin. Death, mourning, despair, a feeling of lostness. Still others see him as agitated with the lack of faith and unbelief that surrounds him. Remember the Jews, his formidable opposition had come out in the city of Jerusalem. Regardless of how you may want to interpret these verses, maybe it's a combination, a little bit of all three. 
but regardless of how you want to interpret these verses, what you want to read into these visible expression of grief and emotion, Jesus did have an emotional response to those who were mourning Lazarus' death. And Mary was comforted. She was comforted by Jesus' emotional response. There's a time to mourn and a time to be comforted. As I said last week, God, our God, comforts the brokenhearted. Jesus, as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, his nature, displays how God might comfort the brokenhearted, first in Martha's life and then again in Mary's life. Remember, the psalmist affirms the same. In Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's our God. Hear the words from the pen of the Apostle Paul once again in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation this morning. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. God's comfort is a pass-it-forward experience. God comforts the brokenhearted so that we can then comfort others. There is a time to mourn and a time to be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You will be comforted. I will be comforted. Last week, we came up with three implications from the way that Jesus came alongside Martha. Dressed in human flesh, God dressed in human flesh, and consoled her. You and I can be comforted during our times of trouble by, by God's presence. He's going to show up. In fact, we live and move in his presence. We cannot escape the presence of God. We'll be comforted by God's promises. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, it reads, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. All the things that he provides for us. God's going to give us promises that will sustain us. And then God's person. Know who he is can be a tremendous source of comfort, knowing who he is. Three implications from Martha's encounter with Jesus. Mary's encounter offers us a couple of more. Blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted by God's intimate involvement. 
You know, we just have to turn to the back to the very first book of the Bible. Right out of the gate, we find a character by the name of Joseph. Remember the, the boy of the coat of many colors, favorite of his dad? His brothers got a hold of him, sold him into slavery in Egypt. He spent time in prison, rose through the ranks, and became a leader of Israel. Eventually, his brothers were dependent on him because of a, a famine that had hit the Palestine in the area. They were without food, and they had to go to Egypt, where Joseph's had ri- Joseph had risen to the point of being in control of all the food that was available. His brothers eventually, of course, were exposed, and Joseph brought his whole family to Egypt. In the end, when his father had died, Joseph's brothers were concerned that Joseph would now retaliate. Here's what he said, Joseph's words, to his brothers who feared for their lives. Do not be afraid, for, I, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So here we have Joseph looking back on his life and all the trouble that he'd experienced and realized that God had brought him through all of those experiences with a specific purpose in mind. Luke chapter 12, verse 7. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. John chapter 10, that chapter about Jesus being the good shepherd, says that to him the doorkeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. God is intimately involved in your life and mine. I am the good shepherd, he claims, and I know my own, and my own know me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, he's talking about members in the church, people in the body, just as he desired. You're here, I'm here, by the purposes of God. Acts chapter 17, verse 27 says this, For in him we live and move and have our existence. God is intimately involved in the affairs of our lives. The one who created all things, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together, is intimately involved. The details of your life, and the details of mine. That ought to be a source of comfort and strength as we go through these seasons of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted by God's emotional engagement. In your handout this morning, I've given you a list of verses talking about the kind of, well, the scriptures that speak to the emotions of God. God is an emotional being, not like us, but we're created in his image as emotional beings. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 reads, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted or tested in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
Jesus, God dressed in human flesh, displays the same kinds of emotional responses that you and I experience. Although his emotional responses are perfect. He doesn't respond as we do. Our emotions are, are touched by, by sin, that sin nature. God's emotions were in complete harmony with his perfect character. I came across an interesting quote that has been in my head all week as I was studying this portion of scripture. Listen to this. Our emotions should be a gauge and not a guide. Our emotions should be a gauge and not a guide. Think about that this week. That's the difference between, often between our emotional response and God's emotional response. It's a gauge, not a guide. There is a time to mourn and a time to be comforted. Let's pray together. I think as we go to prayer, what I would like to do this morning is I'd like Psalm 23 to become a prayer for us. I'll read through the psalm and let that be our prayer because I think it, it gives us a, a real sense of how God can be our comforter in these times of trouble. Let's pray together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let it be so.